We now come to uh, the part in our service where we open God's Word, where we listen for His voice, and we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to shape us and to change us. We are in this summer series called Bite-Sized and Believable, and what we're doing is we're going through one of the most ancient statements of the Christian faith, um, the Apostles' Creed. And we're taking bite-sized chunks of it and asking, you know, how on earth is this thing that was written over 1,600 years ago relevant today in our changing society? Um, and today we're, we're, looking, we're asking the question, why bother with church or, or why do I need the church? And people say all the time, I'm religious or I'm spiritual, but I don't go to church. Why do we need the church? Why do I need the church? Uh, and the part of the creed that we're focusing in on today is I believe in the holy Catholic church. Holy means called out, set apart, different than, more like God than the world, if you like. Catholic being not the Roman Catholic church, but the, that ancient Catholic word that means universal or one. There is one church. There are different badges over the door, but every group of people that meet today in a Trinitarian way and open the Bible and believe what it says, that, that, that's the church. And the church, we use that word in different ways, don't we? We come to church and we talk about the building, but that's not really what it's about. Um, we, we, we do church when we gather together as church, what we do. Uh, we, we can talk about that as church, and, and that's okay. You can use it that way. But ultimately, church refers to the people. Church is you and me coming together in Jesus' name to draw our hearts towards him. I believe in the holy Catholic church. There's loads of ways we could have preached this today. We could have thought about it in all kinds of different ways. But as I prayed about it, God just kept pulling me into this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. And so if you've got a Bible near you or on your device, flick it open, turn it on, or simply look at the screen and you'll see the words there. Listen now for the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. Amen. Father, these are your words. Let nothing I do, let nothing I say distract or get in the way 
of your Spirit speaking to us and moving amongst us this morning. You are what we need. You have what we need. So help us to open our hands, open our minds, open our hearts to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, a few weeks ago, I was cutting the hedge around the manse, up the side of it. Um, and to be fair, I probably looked more like a Beverly Hillbilly than a Presbyterian minister while I was doing it. I was in a pair of shorts, sleeveless t-shirt, trucker baseball cap, covered in sweat and dust and green stuff from the hedge, cutting away. And one of my neighbors stopped with me, wound the window down and you know, welcome of the break, went over to chat to him. And he said, are, are you the guy who has the Triumph motorbike? I'm going, yes, I am. <laughs> Any excuse to talk about motorbikes, I am delighted. And he goes, yeah, 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 I have a bike. I said, yeah, I've seen you going in and out with your bike. I've heard of chatting about motorbikes and bits and pieces and um, different experiences, different trips. I have to say his, his use of the English vocabulary was more creative than mine would normally be. Um, but somewhere in the midst of the conversation, he said, you know, the guy that used to live in this house was a minister, but he was dead on. And you know those moments where you see somebody running towards the cliff and you could stop them, but it's too much fun not to. I was going, all oh, right, that's cool. Very good. Okay, okay. And we chatted some more. And he goes, oh, how long are you there? I'm, I'm here about a year. And what do you do? Well, funny, you should ask. You see that church over there, the one the guy used to wear? I'm his replacement. And you saw his eyes just flicker a little bit, thinking, what has he said to me in the last 10 minutes? <laughs> but it was, it was good. It was a great way to connect with him, and I'm still chatting away. He hasn't fallen out with me, which is good. Um, but he was a guy who, from what I can gauge, church isn't even on his radar. And it's interesting because when you look around the world today, God is moving in the most profound ways. There is revival happening in different parts of the world. The Iranian church is the fastest growing church on earth at the minute. It's just what God is doing there is incredible. In North Africa, there are people who have been Muslim having dreams about Jesus and giving their lives to him. The church is growing. In China, the church is growing. In other parts of the world, the church is thriving. And yet a lot of statistics that we read about church in Northern Ireland and in the UK don't paint that picture. One statistic I read, and you have to be careful with statistics, but one statistic that I read uh, Evangelical Alliance had produced it and said that in the past, I think it was the past eight years or the past 10 years, the Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, and Baptist church, church in the UK, so the established churches in the UK have closed almost 15,000, 1,500 congregations. Isn't that incredible? 1,500 congregations. We seem to live in an age when, when people that we know and people that we love are checking out of church. There's different reasons for that. 
Uh, and I want to be gentle in this because it's not exclusive list, but there's different reasons for that. Some people are disinterested. Either their perception of what church is about or the message that we communicate or the style of how we do things. They've said, that's not for me. That's just not relevant for me at all. And they've stepped back, they've checked out, they've stopped coming, either because of lack of belief, they've stopped coming to church. And we all have people in our lives, whether colleagues or friends or family members, and they've stopped coming to church because they're just disinterested, it's irrelevant. Other people are distracted, and I'm not pointing fingers, I'm not condemning anybody, but maybe as I say this word, this applies to some of you. That church is a choice amongst the other hobbies that you have. Some Sundays you're here and other Sundays you're at the coffee shop or doing something else. I had a family in a church that I worked in previously who when I called with them, they said to me, oh no, that's not the Sunday we go to church. What? (laughs) They had a pattern of going one Sunday and not going the next Sunday and they just fall into that rhythm. Other people have given up on church because they've been damaged by it. They've been hurt by it. Something that's happened, something that's been said has just caused them such pain that they've, that they've just found it too painful to connect back in. And they still ha- are open to, to Jesus, but they just can't bear themselves to be around other people who love Jesus. There's different reasons why people have checked out of church. There's others as well. Interestingly, the Times newspaper back at Christmas time ran uh, an article about research that they'd done, and they just, they'd printed that in the past four years, it surveyed people in the UK, and in the past four years, the openness to a belief in God has risen by 5%. Isn't that interesting? Maybe church attendance in established churches has gone down, but there's an increased openness to a higher power, to to a spirituality that we're now seeing statistically coming across. And whilst the the established mainline churches have closed um, 1,500 churches in the past number of years, in the same time period, there have been over 2,000 new churches opened in the UK, mostly by Pentecostal and independent churches. But as Presbyterians, we have opened some new churches in the last years as well, and it's exciting. Why am I sharing all this? Because 2,000 years ago, God poured out His Holy Spirit, and He birthed a movement called the church that from then until this day, and I believe what Scripture teaches, until Jesus comes again, the church is the primary place where God grows faith and releases hope into a broken world. That it has been, it is, and it will continue to be the way that God releases His love, His hope, and His favor into the world today. Church is important absolutely essential. So, what we want to do this morning for a few minutes is in this text in Hebrews, 
I want us to look at four statements, if we have time, four statements that uh, the, the author of Hebrews writes, where he says, let us do something, let us do something, let us do something. So the first thing I want to draw our minds into is we think about why we come together as church, why we gather as church in Jesus' name, because it refocuses our hearts on God. The writer of the Hebrews says, let us draw near to God with glad and sincere hearts. What were you thinking when you walked in the door of church this morning? What was in your head as you arrived in here this morning? Some of you were here from half eight. Some of you were here from, I don't know, 20 to 11. Shame on you. Um, what was in your, in your head and your heart when you walked in? Were you thinking, Whew, we made it just about. Well done. Well done for being in church today. Maybe you walked in and you were thinking, I wonder, do they know? As you looked around and felt eyes on you and your conscience was pricked about some of the stuff that's going on in your life. I wonder, do they know? I wonder, do others know what's going on? Maybe you walked in and you were already forming a list of the dozen people you have to speak to because there's a range of things you have to get done and you know those people are going to be here. Or maybe you haven't even processed the fact you're in church today. Maybe you've walked in and your head's still thinking about the 10 things you have to do after church finishes. Maybe you've been thinking about, I wonder what we're going to sing. I wonder what he's going to talk about. I wonder how long he's going to talk. I wonder, is it going to be relevant to me? Did any of you come with this in your head? With an openness, with a desire, with an expectation of drawing near to God, of encountering the living God in this space that we carve out and we call church. You see, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent is, is the word we use in theological terms. He's everywhere all of the time. And, and that concept of an omnipresent God, it, it, it inspires all within us. Wow, God is everywhere. But it doesn't inspire intimacy. Our human Finite brains and hearts have an understanding of relationship that is face-to-face. And so, yes, God is the all-powerful creator, that he's everywhere all of the time, but he knows we need something more personal, more intimate to identify with, to connect with, something we can look at and engage with. So, in the Old Testament, um, the, the, the place of encountering God and experiencing God was called the temple. And I, I know a lot of you know this. I'm going to overrule ground, but forgive me for it. Um, the, the temple was the place in Jerusalem that people came to, to gather, to worship, to meet with God. And if you were a Gentile, you could go so far in. If you were a woman, you could go so far in. If you were a man, you could go a little bit further. If you were a priest, you could go further. But in the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies that was separated by this huge, heavy curtain. The Ark of the Covenant was in there, and there was this belief. Because God had told us this, that that's where his presence dwelt. 
at the temple was where he was to be experienced and encountered. And once a year, the, the high priest got to go in behind this temple and offer sacrifice and burn incense and be literally in God's presence. And the curtain wasn't there to keep people out. The curtain was there because God is so holy. He is, he, he is just pure, white-hot holiness. And for sinful humanity to come in contact with, with a holy God would lead to us just being burned up and destroyed. The, the curtain was there not to separate us from God, but to protect us from God's holiness. And tied in at the temple was this elaborate system of, of sacrificing animals, which sounds barbaric to us today when we're all vegans, right? Uh, not quite. But it does sound quite old-fashioned to us today, but this was the, the, the practice of the day where animals were sacrificed and the blood was used to atone for, to bring forgiveness for the people. But that blood was only ever temporary as we came into God's presence. It didn't deal with our sin. What I've later realized is that blood wasn't just a temporary sacrifice. It was a signpost pointing to one who would come, who would be an ultimate sacrifice, whose blood wouldn't have to be shed again and again and again but who would make an ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the people. So that's the Old Testament. The place of encounter was at the temple, at the Holy of Holies. You fast forward to the New Testament, and the temple ceased to be a place, but became a person. It changed from a place to a person, to the person of Jesus Christ, who said, you will destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. He was talking about himself, not the building, the bricks and mortar, but himself, Jesus of Nazareth, in whom the fullness of God chose to dwell, fully human, fully God, who when he looked at his disciples, he said to them, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ. And I'm setting this up because I want to read these verses to you again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. What's he saying? Jesus' blood became the ultimate sacrifice that all the other Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to. They could never properly deal with your sin and my sin, but Jesus, fully man, fully God, died on the cross, and his blood became the sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world, to make us holy before God, to make us right with God. And when his body was broken on the cross, when he was pierced, to use another word, when his flesh was torn, at the same time the curtain in the temple was torn, and that Old Testament image of the restriction of God's presence was torn. Jesus, whose body just carried God's presence, was torn, and the presence of God spilled out into all of creation for you and for me to encounter the living God. Presence is available. What does that mean for us today? This is, this is complicated. What does that mean for us today? 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, when you become a Christian, your body, my body, when you become a Christian, your body, my body, becomes a temple to the Holy Spirit. No longer in bricks and mortar, no longer in one person in Jesus Christ, but now the Spirit of God, the presence of God dwells in you and dwells in me. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there are huge implications with that when we think about uh, what people are saying and doing to their bodies today. And then something interesting happens when we all come into one place like this. Oh, a few little temples of the Holy Spirit. When you come in to a place like this and gather together. Because Peter says to us, uh, in First Peter 2, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house, that when we come together, God's presence promises to be in our midst. He indwells the praise of our people. Or as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, where two or more gather in my name, I will be there. God, the living God, is literally here this morning. And with all the other things in your head, all the other things in your heart, I invite you to lay them down. He is here because he wants to encounter you, to meet with you. He wants to be known by you. As a kid, I remember my mom coming into church and she would pause and bow her head and pray. And I'm thinking, the minister hasn't even started yet. What are you doing? And she said, I'm preparing myself to meet with God. 35 years ago, I remember her having an expectation of encounter when she came into church. When we gather, anticipate God speaking to you, coming to you, moving amongst you. God is here. We're never going to get through all this today. Number two. Number one, church coming together as church refocuses our hearts on the living God. Number two, gathering as church, it reorientates us into the true story. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. N.T. Wright, a bit of a hero of mine. You've heard me quote him before. Um, He says there are two competing stories being told um, in the world at the minute and have been being told for a while now. Two philosophies trying to make sense of what is going on and how we're living and how we're prioritizing and how we're dreaming. One is the story of progress. I'm just going to do this really quickly. One is the story of progress. It was birthed out of modernism 150 years ago, maybe more. The Industrial Revolution, breakthroughs in science, breakthroughs in technology, breakthroughs in medication. This idea driving it all that with enough work, with enough effort, with enough research, with enough money, we can eradicate all of the world's problems. We can fix a broken world. And we see that when we hear people talking, leaders talking, politicians talking. 
We get captured in that mindset of progress, that, that progress can lead to perfection. And there's a ripple of that that has captured something in Christianity as well, that if we pray enough and if we give enough, and if we serve enough, and if we love enough, we can actually usher in the fullness of God's kingdom here and now. The other story is the story of escapism, birthed probably on the back of the Second World War as we moved into the sexual revolution of the 60s, the, the death of institutions, the death of absolute truth, the idea that, that feelings, how I feel, determines both truth and identity. And we moved into this idea, A, that whatever's going on in the world, it's going to all end someday anyway, so you might as well live and be happy and have fun and grab as much as you can for now. And B, that the only thing that matters is yourself. This idea of escapism. We could say a whole lot more about that, but we see a ripple of that come into Christianity as well when we, we, we think about the idea that the world is evil and that ultimately souls are what go to heaven and the body gets destroyed and the world gets destroyed. So why worry about environment? Why worry about poverty? Why worry about the physicality? It's only the soul, the self that goes forward. Escapism. Here's the problem, though, and I, I, I hope I haven't confused you with that, but here's the problem, though. The idea of progress doesn't take seriously the intensity of human sin. The world is profoundly broken. And no amount of us trying to tinker with it and fix it is going to deal with the reality of human evil and the complexity of sin that lives in every human heart. The problem with escapism is that we look around and we, we see a world that we love. And yes, it's broken, but we, we, we can understand that when God created it and He said it is good, we can still see the ripples of the goodness running through the creation, can't we? And we're not totally okay with the fact that everything gets destroyed and burnt up and just live for today. But see, when we gather as church, we get to reorientate ourselves back into not the stories that are being told out there, but the true story that is being told in here. The story that, that N.T. Wright says is, is the resurrection story. Not progress, not escapism, but resurrection. Told in four parts of creation, of fall, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the restoration of all things. And Wright says that what God did in Jesus Christ on that first Easter, he promises to do for the whole of creation. 
that there is a new heaven and a new earth birthed, not from nothing. This world was created from nothing, but the new creation will not be created from nothing, but will be birthed from the best of this world. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Why is that important? Why is it important to come back in here and reorientate ourselves into this story? Because this story gives us hope. It gives us real hope that God is telling a story and inviting us to be part of it and then sending us out there to live it and proclaim it to other people. That the things that you're carrying within you, the disappointments, the pain, the hurt, the heartache are not going to go on forever. That there can be forgiveness and there can be healing sometimes now, but but in eternity, those things that are causing you pain will not carry on beyond the grave. And in that new creation, there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more heartache. Let me do one more. We're not going to get to do all four of these. Yeah, meal's warm. When we gather as church, refocus on a person of Jesus Christ, reorient ourselves into the true story of the gospel, and reset the rhythms of our life. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, the author says. The most obvious way to think about that is, is the gift of Sabbath that God gives to us. Um, and it is a gift. It's not a rule. It's a gift. It's an invitation to, to rest. It's an invitation to, to gather with God's people. It's an invitation to reconnect with, with God and to be reminded of His story and of His love and of His goodness. It's built into the fabric of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. When God brought the Israelites out, uh, or the Hebrew people out of Egypt, given the Ten Commandments, these people that had been working every day for almost 400 years were given a day off, a restful day. to come together and worship, to be with family, to allow their body, minds, and souls to rest and recalibrate. When we gather as church, we get to reset our rhythms. And I've been challenged about this. I've been challenged about the rhythms of my life. Um, I felt God asking me this question. Are the rhythms of my life leading me towards God and others, or are they leading me towards selfishness and excess? I've been wrestling with that question all summer, and I'm throwing it out to you as well. Are the rhythms of your life leading you towards God and others or towards selfishness and excess? Let me give you one example. Um, I realized in self-reflection that whenever I get a quiet night to myself, what I do is I fall into the sofa and over the next three hours merge into part of the sofa and I put Netflix on 
and I disappear into a box set on Netflix and a 200-gram bar of dairy milk whole nut chocolate, which I get is disgusting. Yeah, I, I do get that. But what I, what I realized was that was becoming not just something that was nice, but something that was normal for me. Not a treat, but a regular rhythm of life. And there's nothing wrong with that as a treat, but if it becomes what you do all the time, then there's a problem with it. And God was asking me, are the rhythms of my life leading me towards Him and to other people, or are they leading me towards selfishness and excess? And so I want to ask you this morning, how are the rhythms of your life? Be honest. What is the balance you have between work and rest? What is the balance between exercise and eating? What is the balance between social interaction and social media? What is the balance between TV and time with God? Ask yourself the question now, how are the rhythms of your life? And then more importantly within that, who has permission in your life to ask you that question? How is your heart? Who gets to ask you and challenge you to say, I think you're working too much. I think you're eating too much. I think you're spending too much. Who gets to challenge you in accountability and love within that? I, I've, over the summer, committed myself to, to a new rhythm, if you like. I want to share it with you now, uh, and we'll finish with this. This isn't the answer, it is an answer, because we're all different. We all need different things to thrive and come to life. And I share this with you not about creating an illusion of perfection, but an invitation of accountability. I want you to ask me how my heart is. I want you to ask me how the rhythms of my life are. You have permission to do that. But I'm probably going to ask you the same question back. But this is what I'm committing or covenanting to do as I go forward. Daily, it's about spending time with God. Bible study prayer every morning. And then a short devotion at night before I go to bed starting and ending the day with my heart laid bare before God. Weekly, gathering here with you guys to worship. And also this year, I'm going to join one of the home groups. I haven't done that yet, but I'm going to join a home group. And I really want to encourage you, if you haven't joined either a home group um, or... I've had a brain melt. CBE, well done, Community Bible Experience. How did I forget that? Uh, if you are not part of a home group or a CBE group, I really want to encourage you to think about becoming part of one this year. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Commit to doing life and journeying with a group of people who get to encourage you and challenge you in your walk of faith with God. Monthly, I'm going to withdraw for about half a day for solitude and fasting, just to be alone with God. 
And annually, I'm going to commit to going on a Christian conference or retreat, whether that's up to New Horizon or New Wine or something, but to build that into part of my holidays. Daily, weekly, monthly, annually, resetting some of my rhythms. And I share that with you because I think we're meant to be accountable and encouraging to one another. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. What are the rhythms of your life? Maybe for you it's as simple as just saying, I'm going to be in church every Sunday. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe it's about saying, I'm going to try and spend time every day with God because I recognize that is the most important thing I can do. Maybe it's, I'm going to take a risk and join one of the home groups. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe it terrifies you, the thought of sitting with a group of other people. Um, you don't have to say a whole lot. You can just come along. That's fine. What rhythms do you need to step into as a new Christian year approaches? Guys, I haven't got through everything I wanted to say this morning, and time, time has beaten us. Um, so let's pause there. Let's quieten our hearts. Let's pray for a second. Father, you are here. Your spirit is in this place. And on the back of a, a, a lot of words, I ask you to come and meet with and minister to every single person here. Bring forgiveness. Bring encouragement. Maybe this morning, Father, uh, the simple thing that we ask of you, bring a sense of belonging. This is your church. Not mine, not the elders, not the founders who planted it 80 years ago. This is your church. And for some folk who have been coming for a few weeks, and maybe one or two who have been coming for years and years and years and still feel like outsiders, bring a sense of belonging a sense of belonging to you, Lord, and a sense of belonging to the people around them. And we want to thank you, Jesus, that you have died for us, that you've made a way for our sins to be forgiven. You've made a way for us to, to know you and to be with you both now and for all eternity. And if you've never taken that step of faith, if you've never had your sins forgiven, if you've never become a Christian, pray with me now. Jesus, thank you that you love me, that you died for me, and that you've made a way for me to be with you forever. 
I repent of my sins. I turn to you. Come into my life, Holy Spirit, and make me a child of God. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.